Welcome to Seize the GM. I'm your host, Zended. I am your co-host, Jules. And I'm Garda Moje. Have you ever had a great idea for a campaign? Do you have a group of friends who want to play an RPG, but you have no one to run it? Do you want to see what the world is like behind the GM screen instead of in front of it? Well, we're here to help you do just that. Each week, the three of us will be discussing various GMing topics, terminology, maps, atmosphere, world building, you name it. So sit back and relax. Let us help you. Improve your art of GMing. One show at a time. And welcome back to another episode of Seize the GM. It's good to hear you or for you to hear us wherever and whenever you are. This episode, we're going to take a chance to look at player-centric design. You may recall we looked at GM-centric design recently, and we wanted to flip the tables around and make sure we gave players their chance to shine. Yeah, because you know what? They really do need to. Look, I'm a known partisan. Everybody who's listened to any of the previous episodes knows where I probably fall on all this. So I'm not going to take up too much time right now other than saying I got burned in the past, and I am not always a fan of this. So Zen, what is it, and why should people do it if they have somehow been hoodwinked by their GM? Okay, so player-centric design, it's, it is another way, as we've said, for building campaigns and adventures for games. Now, GM-centric design is more about, like, the GM's ideas, and player-centric design is more about what the players are kind of wanting out of a game. And it may seem like it's a simple way to run games, because you just kind of let the players do what they want. But in actuality... It is only that for, like, the very first session. I mean, where we talked about GM-centric design, we talked about how the main beats of the story were kind of defined by the GM. The players still had agency, usually. Occasionally, maybe the the illusion of agency. But a GM-centric design let a GM set the theme and story directly. Mm-hmm. Player-centric design, this is where the GM is far more reactive than proactive. Yes. And now, it's, a, it well, is, it's a fine line to walk. It is. It is a very, very fine line to walk. And actually, one of the things that I, I love to say about this is this is, a, this is a style of running games where, as the GM, you thrive on having your ideas busted <laughs> players are very very good at well you not them, following through <laughs> you give them a b c d e and they choose z by route of one through eight <laughs> <laughs> player centric design is kind of at the forefront right now it undergirds a lot of some of the independent and narrative flavored games that are really popular for good reason 
if you look at you know grognards my age and older you can see them running old school games that were nothing but railroads yeah and th- there wasn't a story so much as a series of challenges barely removed from wargaming yeah as as it's expanded and and this hobby this this wonderful chance to explore narrative and concept and theme has grown players want to have a little more say in the action. Why can't I go left instead of right? Or in the bad form of this, yes, I can see all of the story and plot clues, hints, and threads heading here. I'm going to go over the hill to see what you come up with. Yeah. Not the healthiest option, in my opinion. It's, it is, as you said, it is a very fine line to walk. Now, this is one of the things where this is how I do it. Not everybody else is going to do it this way. But when I'm running something that is much more player-centric, I generally have two things that have to happen. Number one is I have to have everybody's character sheets. Because character sheets in, in a game like this are your roadmaps. They tell you what the players think they want their characters to do. Or they actually tell you what the character is supposed to do. Because if all of your PCs build these horrific combat monsters, you have a combat-heavy game. Because... Players have made those kinds of characters. That's what they want. Give them what they want. But also try to work in other things that you also want. Because you, as the GM, are still technically a player. You're just the player that's involved with giving the setting to everyone else. So you still have to have some ability to have agency in a player-centric design. And that's something else that gets lost a lot, is people don't accept the fact that the GM also needs to have some kind of agency in that kind of a game. Well, yeah, and I think that the real difficulty and strength here is that to run a player-centric designed campaign, you don't just wait for your players to jump around and then stitch it together now it's important they not be sitting there dangling on you know your your marionette strings to dance for you (laughs) but this is a much more collaborative component and aside from ceding authority and agency to the players it means also respecting those player choices so If they want a social heavy game and are heading in that direction, it's incumbent on you to fulfill that. And so what I'm going to say and how I think you can deal with those sorts of setups the best is going back to listen to some of our old episodes where we talk about NPCs and theme. You still can control theme to some extent as a GM in a player-centric design. You may have them all dropped in the middle of a sandbox that has no railroad tracks, 
but there's still some sandcastles in the edge of the sandbox to play with. So if and the you players... You, honest, you really should have some of those elements out there. Even if all they are are set pieces that you can drop wherever. Well, and that's the plug-and-play components we talked about. Having that kind of language to work with. Having the variety of NPCs or settings so that if they do want to go over the hill, you at least have some kind of an idea. Yeah. yeah. Is That's going to help you. So, again, I've had bad experiences. <laughs> Player-centric design is also something the GM has to be wary of. I played characters who weren't over-the-top enough. I played the characters who were not wanting to do what the over-the-top player who happened to be in good standing with the GM wanted to do. Would you like to guess who ended up never getting past step one or two of any story beats? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, here's, here's something else, though, that you need to keep in mind as the GM. While all of this stuff is going on, you can do... You can have those little set pieces that are always in your back pocket. Constantly keep a notebook with ideas, notes for things like that. Because you never know where that inspiration is going to come. So always having it, either a notebook or a, um, a voice memo on your phone because most of us not all have computers in our pockets, you know. Or a sortable, filterable spreadsheet. <laughs> only you work that way. Um, <laughs> I promise I'm not the only one who, like, geotags their NPCs. But notes. You will need to make tons of notes. Not only between game sessions, but in the game while things are going on because what's going to happen is you're going to forget the name of Joe the the forge master and they're going to come back to Joe the forge master because they liked that he was a forge master not that his name was Joe but somebody in the group is going to remember that his name was Joe and you won't Write his name down. And don't make all of your NPCs' names Joe. Because that just gets really confusing. <laughs> Unless there's a particular reason, like they all are actually clones from Central Casting. But that's a different story for a different episode. Exactly. Uh, player-centric design also means listening to very intently the emotional beats your stories are going to tell. The players are the ones in control, and if you go back and listen to some of the episodes we've had about horror stories, this is a place and a time where it is important to pay attention to those limits because you may not realize in responding and reacting and improvising, riffing off of what you're given, that you're trending close to an area that is not comfortable for your players. Yeah. So X cards, Seems notes… Yeah, those those darker themes. And it may be inadvertent, and it may not even be something you see coming or see as intensely dark, 
but in a player-centric game, this this I think is even more important than making sure every player gets to have that moment that that you know I was just muttering and, and complaining about not being given the ability to take the break and step back if another player or the GM yeah. veers into those areas because as a GM, if it's GM centric design, you've got the rough contours. Even if it's a roller coaster and not a strict railroad, you have a pretty good feel of, of what sort of themes are coming and going and you can steer and encourage things to and from areas that are problematic. Player centric, you've got to be ready to make a change on, on the fly. They mm-hmm. can really sneak up on you. And and in ways that you're not expecting sometimes. And while that can be good, it can also be very, very dangerous. And if you do see that sort of thing starting to come and you can't seem to get it reined in, do not be afraid to just flat out stop or if it happens and then you've like basically you misread your table and all of a sudden everyone is looking at you like what just happened don't be afraid to apologize and be sincere about it because those things, like, you may not be offended by it, but somebody at that table could be. Which is why you have to be able to read the table when you're doing things like this. Because they do, it, it matters a lot more when you're doing this than it does in other ways. So... That is something that you really do have to pay attention to is that table dynamic, the, the, the vibe of the table, for lack of a better word. If it starts to go crazy, back out as fast as you can or apologize when you have gone too far because everybody makes mistakes. And if you own the mistake and you're sincere in it, that will go way further than a, <laughs> well, you know, you just have to get over it. But that's a consent thing, but it needs to be placed there in with all of this. The other thing as a GM to think about when you're preparing for a player-centric campaign or longer design, have ways to bring resolution in your back pocket. In GM-centric design, you have beats and set pieces in your back pocket to move things along. You know starting point, you know the ending point. How they get from one to the other doesn't matter so much. In player-centric design, have things that can end or punctuate at the drop of a hat because you may not realize what's happening until it's too late and 
it's a narratively appropriate time to end a beat, to end a you know adventure or campaign. Have a couple of bosses, have a couple of moments, have something that can help tie things together in your back pocket that you can deploy. Yeah. Yeah. Those it's again, that's one of the reasons why take notes, take tons and tons of notes. And it. even without notes, just pull it out of thin air if you've yeah. laid enough if there are enough threads out there, if you've got remember that whole having their character sheets? Yep. Pick one or two facets of each of their backgrounds, each of your players' backgrounds. Put them together into a blender. That is your big bad evil guy thing person. Yep. And and they saw one element of this person. And if you do it right, if you do it right, they will see their actions reflected when they come out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that is a great way to tie all of it together. Is to if you have those backstories. Some games just don't, you know, if all the players want to do is run in, kill things, and that's it, and you're running basically a Monster of the Week game. And there's nothing Have wrong fun. with that. Have fun with it. But that's I've a beer got... and pretzels game, and that's fun. I've got a particular chart and a particular adventure book that I need to use with you for one of those. <laughs> you will hate me forever and hate the people who wrote it forever, but oh, it'll be so much fun. Maybe but not. when you find out what happens, yes, yes, you would be hating me. Okay. It's also my approach to how to handle uh, player-centric design. Oh. See, I I've I remember when I first started running stuff. And I had a few adventure, like published adventures in, in my pocket. And I ran one or two of them, was not real happy with stuff. And I knew that I didn't have the same style. So I started doing things my own way. And it was more based around the players at the table and what they wanted to do. It wasn't, I have to make an adventure that they will enjoy and they will go on and will go from this room to this room to this room to this room. To me, that became very boring very quickly. But that was the old school way of running games was you build a dungeon, they go into the dungeon, they kill things, they come out, they sell their loot. And to me, that didn't give the players enough agency. So I wanted them to have more. So I wanted what they did when they weren't in the dungeon. And I started doing that from a very, very early age. I, I blame reading on that problem. <laughs> Because, I mean, good fantasy books take those things into account. What are they doing when they're not adventuring? They talk about it. It may be something that only is talked about, but it's there. So, I mean, I was pulling things from books way back in the day. 
and applying them to how I ran games. So it does, you can do that. You don't even have to call it player-centric design or, you know, GM-centric design. It's just how you run games. Because everybody's going to run them differently. These are just tools. And that's the biggest trick. Everything that we talk about is just a tool to help get your imagination flowing in ways that you may not have thought of before. So, with that being said, I think we've kind of hit about the limit on what we can reasonably discuss on this. I won't beat it over your head, but remember to find us on social media and let us know how you handle player-centric design and what your preferences are. You can find us on Facebook in the Facebook group, on Twitter, Instagram, Discord, follow us on Patreon, even Tumblr, and possibly Farmers Only. So Farmers Only? <laughs> So seek us out and let us know how you feel about player-centric design. Yes. So let's uh, go ahead and roll on into our next topic. And now we enter stat blocks. This is a segment where you can use something that we've created in your game tonight. Okay. I'm going to go. Go for it. All right. The Lost Tomb of Heriotis. The dust cascaded off the stone of the capstone. The glyphs and etchings that were present couldn't be made out just yet. The air that rushed out of the hole was dusty and smelled of lost dreams and wishes. The light from the sun was not going very far into the hole in the side of the pyramid. The edge of the sunlight shows the beginning floor-to-ceiling glyphs etched into the stone. The layer of sandy dust covering the floor hides the edges of the stone flooring, except for the single footprint heading into the tunnel. Very nice. <laughs> so, those of you that um, saw what is in the last episode, this could be a tie-in to that. I'm not saying it is. It just could be. <laughs> All right, and for fun and uh, inspiration... This one's not going to be in the doodly-doo because I am just going to do this off the cuff. It's been crazy. It's been busy, remarkably so. And so this is literally just going to be me closing my eyes for a minute and uh, seeing what pops into existence. You ready? I am ready. It's hard to tell where that silhouette strikes you most uncomfortably. It shouldn't be weird. It's a suit. It's a classic piece. You see him walking towards you, but for some reason, it's off. Backlit, 
hidden from view, all you can see is the shape, the contour, the idea of a well-manicured, well-behaved, well-positioned man who has taken an interest in you. It could be the shoulders, cut a little too sharp, projecting a little too much. Might be the length of the jacket. Might be the folds of the pants. Something doesn't add up. It's not out of time. It's not too old. It's not too new. It's not avant-garde and couture. What you realize as he takes a seat is that that suit is not cut for joints the way you know them. The way whatever it is underneath that moves isn't human. And it may not be threatening, but it certainly wasn't expected. Nice. That was slick. Yeah, I started somewhere with that idea. <laughs> I like it. So. All right. Well. It, relatively fast, but that happens when, you know, Noel and Jules aren't here to correct us. It's true. It's true. But we have, we do still have one more thing that we can slip into. That one, maybe two. It's possible. If you're still listening along at home. Lexicon, where we give you cool words to help improve your vocabulary. Okay. So, our lexicon word for today is mendicant. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. So, there's actually two entries in the dictionary for this word beggarly poor tattered chameleon that is one that's one of the two that's not even that's one definition of the first entry well i mean there's also there's okay. also begging i mean, it, okay well, I'm, no. i'll stop i'm gonna stop keep going okay uh, I'll be quiet. I'll zip my tongue. If it's, if it's I won't talk about ancient. Yes, I won't talk about you know, old <laughs> religious orders. And, and yep, it is in fact a member of a religious order such as the Franciscans, combining monastic life and outside religious activity, and originally owning neither personal nor community property, or a friar. Hence the begging. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's the the noun version. And then there is an adjective version, and that's the second entry, which is the, the first definition is the practicing beggary. <laughs> and uh, the second one is of related to belonging to or constituating a religious order combining monastic life and outside religious activity and originally owning nothing personal or community property-wise. So. Yeah, fun word. All right. So, first known use. 
For the noun, it is the 14th century. As um, sense one, which is the uh, beggar. And the adjective's first use is in the 15th century. And that is in the having belonged to a religious order. That's when that one came into use. Now, history and etymology of this bad boy. Do you happen to know it? Do I know the history and etymology of mendicant? Yes. Uh, it's a French background, but I don't know beyond that. Okay, so it's Middle English from Anglo-French, from Latin. And uh, mendicant or mendicants, which is the present participle of mendicare, mendicare. or to beg. Uh, my Latin vocabulary is slipping. My old Latin teacher would not be happy with me. <laughs> That's okay. The last time I, I took Latin was in eighth grade because they still taught it. Mine wasn't eighth grade, but it wasn't that far away from it. Yeah. So the lookup popularity is in the bottom 50% of words. Surprise! <laughs> if you're looking up the definition of mendicant and don't already know it, if you're not engaging with the Franciscans and are looking up mendicant, what's exactly going on if you aren't an author? Yeah. Yeah. So, or a, a GM. Because, you know, you could have run across this word in, in a way. So... Well, I say we hit those closing remarks. Well, I'll go ahead and go. Uh, Talking about GM-centric design last time, talking about player-centric design this time, had me thinking back through a lot of the novels and and literature and and all those fun things that I've read. And I think for player-centric design, there are other you know, possible reasons, but the Griffin and Sabine trilogy is something that I would highly recommend. Okay. It, as I say, it's a trilogy of books. It is uh, described as a romantic intrigue. It's also absolutely the physical books. This is one of those things that, that, that the electronic form will not do will not be sufficient for. It is physically arresting in that it is told in a way that is interactive. To the extent people today want to see some kind of engagement, uh, Bangkok really included that in the original Griffin and Sabine trilogy from decades ago. But you can find it on the doodly-doo. It is a romantic intrigue, and I believe that it is an example of, or can be seen as an example, of a very well-executed player-centric game. Uh, there, There is you know, a fair question while reading these just whether or not one or both of them are real. Okay. Um. And the first book ends on a really big kind of bombshell drop when it first came out. And 
has now become one of those things that is common. It, it defined a trope that is now used and expected yeah. to a certain extent. It originally, yeah, originally came out in nineteen ninety four, ninety five. So, pick it up. Too old. Modern, as a contemporary. Okay. All right. Well, we're both kind of going with contemporary things this time. Um. So, I have. I actually found this author on. I want to say it was iTunes at the time. Okay. Now he is, his name's Paul E. Cooley. And he is a predominantly horror writer. So, but he also does like science fiction that has horror elements to it. It's, he does a lot of really cool things but he's also done some he uh, he he does a lot like Scott Sigler where he releases everything in audio format as well as like weekly podcasts and he has done now i believe there's two stories that are tied to mesopotamian myth and they are things that you could pull. Like, that's one of the things that I like with his stuff is like you can take like an idea that he presents, you could pull it out very, very easily and drop it into a game. And not in a way that most people would think to use it. And it's, he's, he's a lot of fun. And he's super nice and he's on Twitter. <laughs> like I will like I actually messaged him while the other day because I, I listened to the first episode of his new thing that's actually an old book and I'm like dude I love this stuff I can't wait for more and there was like a week lag because of all the coronavirus stuff and he had just gotten a new full-time job so he was like juggling like three things all at the same time and still doing this. So he's not a full-time writer, but he is good enough to have been a full-time writer. And I really wish he could be because the stuff that he would just churn out would be amazing. So, and there's a link to where you can buy his, I believe it's most of, the stuff that he's written, him and his publisher have kind of had a weird falling out. And as soon as certain things are dealt with, there will be uh, new uh, links to all of his stuff. And I'm, I'm giving you where you can buy stuff right now if you have the money to do it. So check the doodly-doo, find the link, and support artists where you can and how you can. Yes, because... All artists, including podcast artists, <laughs> do we we do this? We do this as a labor of love. There are other people that have made, you know, that really do have to do a certain amount of uh, traffic 
to make it worth their while. We are not one of them, but I will never say no to, to money. See also the Patreon campaign. Please throw us a few dollars if you have the inclination, and we would be happy to discuss with you what sort of Patreon rewards may be determined. Yes. In the meantime, thank you for joining us on another episode of Seize the GM. All right. Well, have a good one, folks. Roll some dice. Have some fun. Contact us or the show using Twitter, Facebook, or plain old email. Our Twitter accounts are at Zendead, at Jules Podcaster, and at 2050GardeMoget. And the show's Twitter account is at SeizeTheGM. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash SeizeTheGM. Or chat with us and other RPG lovers in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Seize the GM. You can email questions or comments to the show at admin at seizethegm.com. And if you have a few bills you want to send us, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. And we thank you. joining us for this episode of Seize the GM. Feel free to leave a comment about this episode on our webpage, www.seizethegm.com. Let the dice fall where they may, and we'll see you all again next week. Seize the GM is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. All copyrighted materials referenced herein are held by their respective owners. No infringement intended, and no claim of ownership is implied. The music for the show is Dreaming Spirit off the album Ghost Machine by the Enigma TNG. His music is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license.